Hello everyone, welcome back. Good to see you. I hope you had a good long weekend. I don't know if you also had a three-day weekend like I did, but it was really freaking nice, especially to have that half day on Valentine's I guess actually three and a half day weekend. Half day on Valentine's Day. Uh, my wife and I, we watched Hobbs and Shaw and Zombieland 2, which were both just great mind-numbing movies. It was awesome entertainment. And then I'm from the Midwest. There's a a, re a gas station that makes this pizza. Uh, the gas station is called Casey's, and they have this like, great taco pizza, and we don't have it where I live. And so my wife made this like heart-shaped taco pizza for us for Valentine's Day. So it was pretty sweet. It was, you know how sometimes you just need a few extra days, a little extra time to just relax and kind of decompress. I definitely needed that this weekend. It was great. Not super excited to get back to the grind tomorrow, but you know, that's what adulthood is, is mostly the grind. Uh, so anyway, so I hope it was good for you guys, and glad you're joining me. So here's what we're going to talk about uh, today. You know, one of the things I mentioned last week was how I'm just kind of over politics in a lot of ways. You know, I've, I feel like for a while there, I felt a lot of pressure to constantly be commenting on what was going on with the Democrat primaries, you know, what's going on with impeachment and all this other stuff. And it's easy to get caught up in that. It's easy to, because there's just always so much stuff. I mean, I really, I kind of sympathize with the the news networks in some ways, you know, when they talk about, you know, there's this 24-hour news cycle and this constant uh, pressure, or at least perceived pressure to keep up. I understand that. And so one of the things I talked about last week was how, um, you know, I kind of want to, we're still going to talk about the politics, but let's look at what are the underlying issues that inform our politics, because that's downstream from culture. And so we're, today we're going to talk about some celebrity activism and um, kind of the effects of social media and stuff. And we're going to spend more time on some of this cultural, uh, these cultural issues. You know, a couple things I'm kicking around in my mind right now are uh, the topic of healthcare. Even though it's kind of political, it's more of a policy type thing. Um, and so I would love to, you know, dive into our healthcare system in the United States and where are the flaws, what are the good things, and what are improvements that could be made, what are the, the different options on the table. Um, I would love to have just a whole show where we just talked about that. Another thing I've been thinking about lately is uh, the root of the philosophical divide in the Democratic Party. And, you know, one thing I'm starting to come around to is I'm actually, I think, starting to agree with Bernie Sanders on his perspective of his policies and where they come from, not the policies themselves, but I think that actually he's probably making the most coherent argument for why they should be on board with his policies out of anyone in the party. Um, so, but that's, that's a topic for another time. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there to talk about. Uh, so those are some of the things I'd like to kind of be kicking around over the next couple of weeks with you guys. And if you have other things, I'm more than, more than open to those ideas. I, I want to talk about the things you guys are interested in also. But today, like I said, we're going to kind of start by looking at some of the celebrity activism and social media and how that impacts us. And one of the things I'd like to be doing is I want to start to build a case for, you know, what I see as maybe the root issue in our current social divides and our cultural divides. You know, why are things so tense and so divided right now? And it's really like peeling an onion in a lot of ways. And we're really only going to be looking at one of the top layers of that onion today, but I want to start to build the case. I don't know how many layers we're going to have to dig through to get to it, but that probably one of the root causes, if not 
Um, the singular root cause for all of this, these divisions we're feeling right now is the fact that policy discussions and disagreements on, you know, what to do in certain issues has largely moved from the realm of disagreements about what one person thinks is effective versus another person into the realm of, you know, good versus evil, right versus wrong, just versus unjust, moral versus immoral, and that that has become the framing for pretty much everything right now, and that that's the root of where our divides are. And I want to start to build the case of this shift to framing everything as, you know, not honest disagreements, but, you know, we're the moral ones and you're not is probably largely to blame for where we're at right now. And we're going to start peeling that onion today. Again, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to do that. Um, But that's the case I want to start to make. And I'd like to maybe focus a lot of our attention around that. Um, So that leads us to this, this idea of celebrities and activism, social media. And so while I was researching this, I was just looking up, you know, what do other people think about celebrities and their, their different forms of activism. You know, it's kind of been a cliche for a while. Um, and so, you know, some different perspectives I found. You know, Tim Poole, he's a, I guess he's a content creator, you know, journalist type. And he had a video about celebrity activism and about how, you know, they're just trying to push their products. It's insincere. You know, they'll just jump on bandwagons in order to gin up interest in whatever their latest project is. And there's probably parts of that that are true. Um, there was another uh, video I found, you know, Watch Mojo, that YouTube channel's been around a long time, and they had a list of their top 10 favorite celebrities, or the celebrities they liked, until they got, you know, too political. Uh, you know, what was interesting about that was number 10 was Russell Brand, and number 1 was Kirk Cameron. And uh, we'll, we'll get to my thoughts on that here in a minute. But theirs was, you know, well, we like celebrities, but if they get too political, we don't, you know, then we don't like them anymore. There is this other group that uh, is it's called the Peace News Network that they focus on you know international crises and issues around the world and they said that celebrities actually can hurt more than they help because they focus you know only on one angle of a crisis they impose outside interventions and they can simplify complex situations or at least they present a simplified answer to complex uh, situations so there's a lot of different opinions out there about celebrity activism. Um, and very little of it is good. Very few people view, you know, the concepts of celebrity activism as a good thing. And one thing that I think is important for us to distinguish is the idea of, or I guess the categories of that there are celebrities that are internally motivated in their activism, and there are celebrities that are externally motivated or externally pressured into forms of activism. So, you know, some internally motivated ones would be, you know, Jane Fonda. I think, you know, I don't agree with Jane Fonda. But she was very against the Vietnam War. She, they called her Hanoi Jane. She went and visited Viet Cong soldiers during the Vietnam War. Um, but she was internally motivated to do that. She cared enough about that, and she used her platform and her celebrity to do that. Uh, Bono is in that category. Angelina Jolie is in that category of people that are internally motivated um, just because of causes they care about. I would put Kirk Cameron and Russell Brand in those categories What's fascinating about that with that Watch Mojo list is, you know, they're like, well, we dismiss Russell Brand from Get Him to the Greek and Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And Kirk Cameron is ruined, you know, watching Growing Pains. And, you know, we just wish he would, they wouldn't share their politics. And, you know, Kirk Cameron would keep, you know, wouldn't talk about his beliefs. And it's like Kirk Cameron became a born again Christian and everything he does is 
informed by that. And Russell Brand became very politically active. He's basically a communist now, you know, but he's got a podcast and he believes everything he's talking about. And so I think that both Russell Brand and Kurt Cameron, they're in that category of they're internally motivated. These are things that really matter to them. And so they speak about it because it matters to them. In other words, they would be probably engaged in this stuff whether or not they ever had any celebrity status. I think that Russell Brand, regardless of what you know he was doing in his life at that time, whenever he became really you know maybe activated or politically conscious, I think he would probably still be advocating for the things he advocates for. Same with Kurt Cameron, probably just not on the same scale. And so I think we have to differentiate between those that are internally motivated, like the Russell Brands and Kurt Camerons and Jane Fonda's, from those that might have different motives. And for the time being, I'm not even going to talk about um, celebrities that you know we could speculate are just jumping on some type of bandwagon or are just trying to earn some type of brownie points, you know, or virtue signal, as they say. I, I think that we could speculate that about a lot of different celebrities, and so I don't really want to go there. Instead, I want to talk about people that I think are genuinely well-intentioned um, and might be responding to some kind of external motivation or pressures. Um, so anyway, so here's the question, right? So we have those that are internally motivated. We have those that are um, that would be involved in this stuff no matter what. But what happens when we introduce social media into the mix? So I found this uh, this YouTube video also is called The Rise of Celebrity Activism. Um, and it was made in 2018. It's like, well, celebrity activism has been around quite a while, but okay. And the interviewer was interviewing Rosario Dawson and a model named Sarah Sampeo. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Um, but, you know, Rosario Dawson has been involved in politics for quite a while. She was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016. I believe she's dating Cory Booker. I could be wrong about that. But either way, she's another person, I would say, who is internally motivated to be involved in this stuff. Sarah Sampeo was the reason she was even involved in this, why she was on this panel, was because she had this really horrible thing happen to her where this French magazine published nude photos of her without her consent. And Sarah uh, put, posted about it on Instagram and brought attention to it um, and w used that social media as a platform to share her story to get the word out. You know, it's kind of a, a true Me Too moment kind of thing. And so, you know, th they both have good reason to be talking about this is the point I'm getting at. But here's, here's some quotes from this, this interview. It's not very long. It's about 20 minutes. I have the link in my sources. You guys, I encourage you to watch it. But here's what they say. So Sarah Sampeo, first she says, Models aren't just pretty faces who have no voice. Social media really has changed the whole industry. When you have a direct contact with millions of people, you start having a responsibility. Using social media to not just post beautiful pictures, but help people to, to not go through what I did. That's when your social media and your celebrity becomes, you kind of have a duty to do that. And the interviewer says, Do you feel that 20, 10 years ago even, you wouldn't have had models, actresses, entertainers with such a direct route to the public. There's more responsibility. You have more responsibility now, don't you? And she agreed. She said, more responsibility and a bigger voice. Someone is going to think twice before doing something to you when you can go directly and just accuse that person of what they did and call them out directly to this big, broad audience. And the same thing to actually talk about things that you're passionate about and charities and subjects that are really important to us. And you can really come through and get your message and other people's message as well. It becomes a really important part of your celebrity. And later, Rosario Dawson kind of piggybacks off that 
And she says, you don't even have to go to the police anymore. You can just put it out there like, yo, this guy touched me. And so we start to kind of see some lines being blurred here between, you know, what you might call, you know, politically conscious um, or legitimate, you know, use of that social media and of that celebrity persona into a more gray area, right? So for Rosario Dawson, so she has a couple of groups that she's a part of that advocate, you know, for different political interests. That's fine. That's a normal thing. She was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders. Like I said, that's fine. That's a normal thing. For Sarah to use Instagram to call out this magazine that did this horrible, humiliating thing to her, that's fine. I think that's a good thing. Now, I don't know if she tried to first use legal avenues to handle that or not, but either way, like, that's the part of the, the Me Too moment, the Me Too movement that was really good that people were able to use those platforms to shine a light on issues that weren't being talked about and to pressure those people. And, you know, think about people like Harvey Weinstein that, you know, are behind bars now uh, because of that. So that's a good thing. But then that gets blurred into where she's saying, look, this is our big part of our persona. We can just talk about what we're passionate about and we can uh, platform other people and get their messages out. You know, and Rosario Dawson saying, we don't have to go to the police. We don't have to use due process. We can just put it on social media. Like now we're getting into some dicey territory. Now, let me clarify, if the law has failed you and you are a victim, then yeah, you exhaust every legal resource at your disposal to make sure justice is done. So I, I'm not talking about using social media in those cases, but where she's saying, you don't even have to go to the police. Well, that's that's pretty dicey territory. That's a dangerous precedent. And the other aspect of this is, you know, what... Sarah was saying is that, well, you can also just talk about things you're passionate about. Well, there's no hierarchy of knowledge or truth or no gatekeeping for distinguishing from something that is, you know, like her saying, hey, this happened to me with this French magazine. Something needs to be done about it. And, oh, here's just my opinion or here's just something I'm passionate about. There's no differentiating between the legitimacy of either of those things or her ability to speak on either of those things. Whereas she has a lot of legitimacy to speak about the first thing, other stuff, people don't really make those distinctions. One thing that's fascinating about that is people are fleeing legacy media like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, because it's all these panels just trying to get 30-second sound bites, and no one really talks about anything in a nuanced manner. Social media does the same thing, where if there's this, always this pressure to keep up with the now or just put out a tidbit, we're not getting nuance there either. And so we're blurring some lines here. And so let, we're, let's talk about the social media component really fast and then get to our specific anecdote uh, here with T-Swift. So uh, one of my favorite authors and thinkers, uh, Jonathan Haidt, wrote an article in The Atlantic at, just a couple months ago in December 2019 called The Dark Psychology of Social Networks, Why It Feels Like Everything is Going Haywire. And in it, uh, Haidt explained that some of the problems of social media in our society, some of the problems that we're seeing... Um, and our politics as a result can be all attributed to how we engage with social media and how that influences us and the incentive structures it creates. So we're going to read some excerpts from that, and then we'll kind of unpack it and use that to inform the next part where we'll dig into Taylor Swift and the documentary and stuff. So Height says, The problem may not be connectivity itself, but rather the way social media turns so much communication into a public performance. We often think of communication as a two-way street. Intimacy builds as partners take turns, laugh at each other's jokes, and make reciprocal disclosures. 
What happens, though, when grandstands are erected along both sides of that street and then filled with friends, acquaintances, rivals, and strangers, all passing judgment and offering commentary? The social psychologist Mark Leary coined the term sociometer, sociometer to describe the inner mental gauge that tells us, moment by moment, how we're doing in the eyes of others. We don't really need self-esteem, Leary argued. Rather, the evolutionary imperative is to get others to see us as desirable partners for various kinds of relationships. Social media, with its display of likes, friends, followers, and retweets, has pulled our sociometers out of our private thoughts and posted them for all to see. If you are constantly express anger in your private conversations, your friends will likely find you tiresome. But when there's an audience, the payoffs are different. Outrage can boost your status. This is a fascinating study. A 2017 study by William J. Brady and other researchers at NYU measured the reach of half a million tweets and found that each moral or emotional word used in a tweet increased its virality by 20%, so its ability to go viral, on average. Another 2017 study by Pew Research Center showed that posts exhibiting indignant disagreement receive nearly twice as much engagement, including likes and shares, as other types of content on Facebook. The philosophers Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke have proposed the useful phrase moral grandstanding to describe what happens when people use moral talk to enhance their prestige in a public forum. Like a succession of orators speaking to, the skept- to a skeptical audience, each person strives to outdo the previous speaker, leading to some public common patterns. Leading to some common patterns. Grandstanders tend to trump up moral charges, pile on in cases of public shaming, announce that anyone who disagrees with them is obviously wrong, or exaggerate emotional displays. Nuance and truth are casualties in this competition to gain the approval of the audience. Grandstanders scrutinize every word spoken by their opponents, and sometimes even their friends, for the potential to evoke public outrage. Context collapses, the speaker's intent is ignored. So there's that that morality aspect there, where the more you invoke some sense of morality, even if it's not agreed upon morality or moral standards, you know, the more you invoke that, then the more of those prestige points you get. So that's, you know, think about that as a through line as I'm making the argument that our shift into this realm of arguing subjective morality for our positions instead of what's effective and what's not is one of the main causes for our divisions. Height continues. Human beings evolved to gossip, preem, manipulate, and ostracize. We are easy lured into this gladiatorial circus even when we know that it can make us cruel and shallow. As the Yale psychologist Molly Crockett has argued, the normal forces that might stop us from joining an outrage mob, such as time to reflect and cool off, or feelings of empathy for a person being humiliated, are attenuated when we can't see the person's face, and when we are asked, many times a day, to take a side by publicly liking the condemnation. In other words, social media turns many of our politically engaged citizens into Madison, talking about James Madison, nightmare, arsonists who compete to create the most inflammatory posts and images which they can distribute across the country in an instant while their public sociometer displays how far their creations have traveled. And then they go on to unpack another aspect of social media, which is the way in which it clogs our information stream to be limited to basically right now. 
So in other words, if you are always engaging with social media and updates and whatever the newest story is or whatever, you're not taking in information from the past or even the recent past. And if you are, it's all put through the lens of the now instead of actually looking at historical events just on their own, just at face value of what happened at this time instead of trying to read that through the lens of right now. So that's probably one of the reasons why we see such a rise in you know acceptance of something like socialism, for example, among younger people, higher than ever before among those age groups is because they're so far removed from the time in which it was a, a big topic of conversation and people were seeing every day broadcast images of places that are being destroyed by those policies. Uh, they, this is how they, they put that, that particular issue. Quote, even though they have unprecedented access to all that has ever been written and digitized, members of Gen Z, which is those born after 1995 or so, may find themselves less familiar with the accumulated wisdom of humanity than any recent generation, and therefore more prone to embrace ideas that bring social prestige within their immediate networks, yet are ultimately misguided. The article concludes, Many Americans may think that the chaos of our time has been caused by the current occupant of the White House and that all things will return to normal whenever he leaves. But if our analysis is correct, this will not happen. Too many fundamental parameters of social life have changed. The effects of these changes were apparent by 2014, and these changes themselves facilitated the election of Donald Trump. If we want our democracy to succeed, indeed if we want the idea of democracy to regain respect in an age when dissatisfaction with democracies is rising, we'll need to understand that the many ways in which today's social media platforms create conditions that may be hostile to democracy's success, and then we'll have to take decisive action to improve social media. So think back to you know, 10, 15 years ago even, um, you know, what pressure was there for celebrities or even for us you know, normal folks, right, to weigh in on certain issues? What engagement did the public have with you know, the top singers of the early 1980s, late 1970s? You know, they might do interviews or go on you know, different, uh, different late night shows, right? Especially you think about like athletes, like basketball players, baseball players, etc. Um, they were not pressured to always have an opinion about everything. There were some that did have opinions on stuff. You know, Muhammad Ali, for example, changed his name and spoke about Islam. Um, but that was one of those cases of someone who was internally motivated to do that, I believe, not externally pressured. But now with social media, think about when it first comes on the scene, people can just, oh, hey, I can talk to my fans. You know, one of the things that uh, the, the model in the previous segment, one of the things she talked about, um, Sarah, again, I, I don't remember her last name. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, but she said, you know, all of a sudden you have millions of people giving your opinion or giving you their opinion immediately, you know, and it's really powerful. And so that's, that's what we see now is that people have this tremendous pressure to have opinions about things that they might not previously have felt the pressure to, you know, there, if you were an athlete, you could just go out, you know, do, do whatever sport you, you played and maybe do an interview after the game, but that was it. You didn't have to have an opinion about Brexit. You know, you didn't have to have an opinion about healthcare. You didn't have to have an opinion about North Korea. You, you know, no, people weren't pressuring you for that, but social media has created that. And then once we've introduced that moral component where everything is now framed within this moral dichotomy as opposed to, you know, well, what works and what doesn't work, 
then that's where you're seeing that even more pressure because people just want to appear like they're one of the good guys, especially when the world is watching. You know, for people like you and I, we could delete our accounts. We can delete Twitter. We can delete Facebook and all that stuff. But like what uh, what they were saying, the celebrities, uh, Sarah and Rosario were saying, is that this is a big part of their persona. They, they have to do that. They have to engage in social media. You can't just not. Um, and so they don't have that luxury. So what do you do in that situation? Again, if you just want to appear like you're one of the good guys, you know, what, what are the pressures that you respond to and, and how does that affect you, uh, you know, psychically and socially? So that brings us to Taylor Swift. So first, you know, on that social media aspect to kind of inform this documentary, you know, last December, I, I mentioned an article that Huffington Post wrote about how feminism went from being really trendy to being angry after Donald Trump was elected. You know, as an aside, I'm pretty sure the angry feminist trope existed prior to the 2016 election, but that's neither here nor there. And the article, it it discussed how social media mobs had pushed celebrities into abandoning, you know, this, what Huffington Post said was a benign definition of feminism, which was, quote, that men and women should be equal. And, you know, into a different definition of feminism, which was their preferred definition. Uh, And what the article said was, so many women were angry after the election, and that anger simmered, burned, and burst out over the latter half of the decade. Combine this rage with the ease of giving celebrities instantaneous feedback via social media, and you have a perfect recipe for pushback if a famous person who has claimed to be a feminist in the media doesn't back that assertion up with action. Now, Insert any word there, right? You still have this the perfect recipe for pushback against any famous person that is claimed to be X, you know, claimed to be a good person, claimed to be moral, but doesn't back that up by supporting whatever your preferred application or manifestation of that is. You can't get away with a stupid, pithy definition of feminism and expect to get a cookie for it, uh, that Lawson said, which is the person Huffington Post interviewed. You have to be able to speak about it in a more educated, thoughtful, and action-based way, or everyone is going to come for you. This feedback loop can be used to shame celebrities into more responsible engagement with political issues and can be a means of education itself. So in other words, they're saying that these social media mobs will harass celebrities until they get on board with their preferred causes and their preferred manifestation of those causes. That's what they're saying happened with Taylor Swift, and they're saying... You, you know, we need you to, you can't get away with this stupid pet, pithy definition of feminism, which is that men and women should be treated equal. You have to conform to our definition. And they piled on these celebrities. And so that brings us to Taylor Swift. You know, later in the article, she talked about how I've, I've been educated. I've learned now, you know, it's pretty dystopian. Like, well, I've been to the camps. I've been educated. I, I co- Communist Party forever, right? I've been re-educated. Uh, that's actually happening in China right now, which is pretty crazy. Maybe we'll talk about that in future weeks. But so I watched uh, the Taylor Swift documentary and, you know, I have a little bit of a different take on this than a lot of the, you know, people I saw commenting about it, to be honest, there was a lot of conservatives, especially that were very critical and said, this was just her virtue signaling. And this was just, you know, she's just trying to, to buy some brownie points and whatnot. And that's not the impression I got from this at all, to be honest. Like, I do feel like there were certain parts of it that seem more scripted than others. But overall, I felt like she was very sincere and very genuine in what she was expressing. And I actually was pretty upset by the end of it because I felt like she's, you know, 
really kind of a victim in a way of, you know, we have a well-intentioned person here who's, you know, good motives, good intentions, and internal um, insecurities have been hijacked by people that are not as well-intentioned and not as well-motivated. So, honestly, I was kind of upset watching it because I felt bad for Taylor Swift, uh, which is a weird position to be in, to be honest. But either way... Um, one thing that's kind of interesting about the documentary is that it was directed by a woman named Lana Wilson. Lana Wilson also, I think, the first thing that she helped write and direct. She hasn't worked on a lot of stuff. I think this was like the sixth thing she directed. Uh, but the first thing she helped write and direct was a documentary about the assassination of a man named George Tiller, who was an abortionist uh, who conducted third trimester abortions. And he was assassinated, which is obviously wrong. Um, And she did a documentary about that and about how awful it is we don't have enough doctors who perform late trimester abortions in the United States. Um, So I'm not trying to link Taylor Swift for that, but I'm saying that, you know, no matter how you feel about that position, that informs a little bit of the perspective of the people that were making this movie. You know, obviously, if you are the type of person who is uh, sympathetic to we need more doctors to perform third trimester abortions, then there's probably some other uh, safe assumptions you can make about that person's ideology or political leanings, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with it. Just like I, if I said she made a documentary about how all abortions should be illegal, you could probably draw uh, conclusions as well based on that. So anyway, I had decided that within the first you know few minutes, I before I turned it on, um, I was like, I'm going to give this a few minutes to decide if I even want to watch this. I'd, and I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I was going to watch the whole thing. But I knew within about 90 seconds that I absolutely had to watch it because it so ties into what I'm talking about here. It so ties in to the way in which these concepts of, you know, morality or what is, you know, quote, good have been perverted and twisted and used uh, to hijack, I think, well-intentioned people like Taylor Swift. So here's the opening lines of the movie. She says, quote, My entire moral code as a kid, and now, is a need to be thought of as good. It was all I wrote about. It was all I wanted. It was the complete and total belief system I subscribed to as a kid. Do the right thing. Do the good thing. And obviously I'm not a perfect person by any stretch, but overall, the main thing I always tried to be was like, just a good girl. I'd been trained to be happy when you get a lot of praise. I had that praise of, Taylor, you're doing a good job at your work, and Taylor, you're doing a good job at being a songwriter. You're doing a good job at being a musician. Like, those pats on the head were all I lived for. I was so fulfilled by approval that that was it. I became the person who everyone wanted me to be. And I would argue that 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 right there encapsulates everything that happens in this movie. That encapsulates everything that, that explains where she is right now. And... By the way, I think that's something that most people can relate to. One of the reasons why I was like, no, I need to watch this is because what she's describing there I don't think is something unique to Taylor Swift. Most people want to be thought of as good. Most people want to be thought of as a good person. But what what does it look like if the way you obtain those feelings are based on subjective kind of ebb and flow kind of things and not something that's really well grounded? You know, if your identity is rooted and something that's always fluctuating, it's going to be a tumultuous time for you. It's not going to be very stable. And so I think that informs 
everything going forward. And that's why I'm talking about the way this concept of morality and people just want to be viewed as, as good guys. They want to be on the good team. Why I think that's been hijacked and that happens to celebrities like Taylor Swift and it happens to regular people as well. Uh, anyway, so this is what she says going forward. We're, pe- we're people who get into this kind of work because we wanted people to like us, because we were intrinsically secure, because we liked the sound of people clapping, because it made us forget how much we feel like we're not good enough. When you're living for the approval of strangers, and that is where you derive all of your joy and fulfillment, one bad thing can cause everything to crumble. And so she sets up, obviously, like the quotes that I'm I'm giving here are from like the first 40 minutes of the movie. So I'm, I'm condensing some here. Um, but this, I'm not taking anything out of context. You can watch it for yourself. But she's setting up this moment when Kanye West comes on stage, right? And he grabs the mic. You know, she wins, I think she was 17. She wins a VMA for best music video. And Kanye West jumps up there, takes the mic, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the greatest music videos of all time. And so she's setting that up about how when you derive all of your joy and fulfillment um, from the approval of strangers, one bad thing can cause everything to crumble. And she says, and she goes on to talk about how after that happened, everyone was booing. She didn't know what to do, and she thought they were booing her. And she says, quote, for someone who built their belief system on getting people to clap for you, being in front of a whole crowd booing is a pretty formative experience. And so imagine you're Taylor Swift. She says, we're, we do this because we're insecure. We do this because we want approval. We do this because we want to be perceived as good. We do this because we want people to clap for us. And you're Taylor Swift, you're 17 years old, you win this VMA, and someone who you respect a lot comes on stage, they do that, and then you hear these boos. How hard are you going to work to never have to experience that again? To never have to experience that feeling of, you know, again, if your identity is out there, that feeling is going to fluctuate. So to never have to experience that feeling of not being approved of ever again. And so I would argue that that informs all of this going forward, that avoiding not feeling good, just like, so it's just the opposite of what I had just said, which is that desire to feel good informs all of this. And conversely, or inversely, the desire to not want to be perceived as bad equally informs that, you know, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So, so here's what, so she talks about this one bad thing ruining it. And I think that there's actually a, a larger, you know, quote, bad thing or bad series of things that informs how she begins to derive approval from people. So in, I think it was in 2016, her album 1989 wins several Grammys. And she, in the movie, she says it was like being on top of a mountain. It was like being on the summit of a mountain and, and how meaningful that was to her in 2016. And this was after in 2015, she had been groped by this uh, radio DJ in Denver. You know, he put his hand under her skirt and um, she sued him and then, he sued her and that got thrown out and then she countersued for like a dollar. And then in 2017, she won, um, which was, that was a big, that was an impactful event, especially thinking about that kind of me too moment. You know, Taylor Swift now had a story that she could share, you know, unfortunately, I'm not saying that's, that's obviously that's a tragic thing that happened to her, but she had a story where she could share that she won, right? Like this piece of crap got fired. He lost everything and good riddance to him. So I think that was very, um, obviously that, informed her experience and informed what she was thinking about at the time. And we'll get into some of those um, specifics here in a minute. But she said in 2016 that that was like the pinnacle. She felt the most approved of. She felt like she was the face of pop music at the time. 
And then in 2018, the Grammys, there, she, so that was her, so 1989, Top of the World. Then she releases this Reputation album, Reputation Tour, and she doesn't get a single Grammy, Grammy nomination. And they show her getting the phone call, and she's like, okay, I gotta do better. I gotta make a better album. We have to make better songs. And you can see how much that hits the root of her identity. And that's in January 2018. So again, she's, she's by her own admission, is living for the approval of others, living for the applause, living to feel accepted and approved of. Doesn't want to ever feel like she's not accepted, not approved of. Well, what else happens in 2018? The midterm elections. So now she has another opportunity to derive that meaning and that acceptance and that fulfillment uh, from a different outlet. And again, going back to her desire to be perceived of as good. And so she talks in the documentary about how during that time she wanted to start speaking up about politics and there was this Senate race happening in Tennessee and there was a woman named Marsha Blackburn that was running and Taylor Swift keeps talking about how well she voted against the Violence Against Women Act and she it's, she just wants to remove all of our protections. And you know, think about what happened to her with that DJ. Of course, she's going to be completely outraged that someone would vote against the Violence Against Women Act. Um, and so that I think that whenever Taylor Swift was pissed about that, wanted to get involved, I think that was genuinely sincere because of her experience. Now, Marsha Blackburn did vote against the Violence Against Women Act, but she voted for a different legislation that was the Republican alternative that just took out the pieces that blurred the things on gender, uh, gender and gender identity, and we'll get into some of that later. But so it wasn't like like all the things that Taylor Swift said, well, she doesn't want us to have this, and she doesn't want this, and she doesn't want us to have protections in this or that way. That's not true. She voted for legislation that provided all of those things. Uh, it just wasn't, you know, wasn't the legislation that Taylor Swift had been informed about or anything like that. So I, I think that she was genuinely just operating on the information she had. But that informs Taylor Swift's decision to get involved politically, I think. So I think it was sincere. Um, I don't think it was some... A, you know, attempt a virtue signal. I think that she was just kind of hijacked here in a lot of ways. So she goes on, she talks about how she wants to get involved. And in so she makes this Instagram post. Um, and she, you know, she feels like she had, she has to weigh in on this stuff. And she, there's a scene where she's talking about, I can't stay silent. And I think it's her dad and some record exec are saying, you know, don't do this. And she's like, no, I have to, this is really important. And so then she posts this Instagram post uh, in October of 2018, quote, I'm writing this post about the upcoming midterm elections on November 6th, in which I'll be voting in the Tennessee or in the state of Tennessee. In the past, I've been reluctant to publicly voice my political opinions, but due to several events in my life and in the world in the past two years, I feel very differently about that now. I always have and always will cast my vote based on which candidate will protect and fight for the human rights I believe we all deserve in this country. I believe in the fight for LGBTQ rights and that any form of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender is wrong. I believe that the systemic racism we still see in this country towards people of color is terrifying, sickening, and prevalent. So again, she's these are things that she is regurgitating that she has been told by other people. This is not, you know, Taylor Swift was running in certain circles there. And so I don't blame her. I think this is very sincere. She goes on to say, I cannot vote for someone who will not be willing to fight for the dignity of all Americans, no matter what their skin color, gender, or who they love. 
Running for Senate in the state of Tennessee as a woman named Marsha Blackburn, as much as I have in the past and would like to continue voting for women in office, I cannot support Marsha Blackburn. Her voting record in Congress appalls and terrifies me. She voted against equal pay for women. She voted against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which attempts to protect women from domestic violence, stalking, and date rape. So again, she voted for a piece of legislation that does all of those things, um, but that's, I think Taylor Swift is going on the information she had. She believed businesses have a right to refuse service to gay couples. She also believes they should not have the right to marry. These are not my Tennessee values. I will be voting for Phil Bredesen for Senate and Jim Cooper for the House of Representatives. Please, please educate yourself on the candidates running in your state and vote based on who most clearly represents your values. For a lot of us, we may never find a candidate or party with whom we agree 100% on every issue. But we have to vote anyway. So many intelligent, thoughtful, self-possessed people have turned 18 in the past few years and now have the right and privilege to make their vote count. Be first, uh, but first you need to register, which is quick and easy to do. Uh, October 9th is the last day to register to vote in the state of Tennessee. Go to vote.org and you can find all the info. Happy voting. So she posts this thing. You know, she says, look, this is, I don't support this person. They're a giant bigot, yada, yada. But what happens in the documentary... After so she shares the post, and then the documentary shows all these clips of her getting attention, seeming uh, praise for posting this Instagram thing, and then it shows how uh, after she posted this, there were a, you know a whole bunch of new people that registered to vote within 24 hours after she had made this Instagram post, and she's sharing that news about all these new voters, and there's all these friends and family around her, and what's fascinating is that as she's sharing about oh, we got all these new registered voters, the people around her are clapping, they hug her, and they tell her how proud they are of her. So she gets that approval and that applause that she so desperately craves. And I'm not saying they weren't genuinely proud of her, but I'm saying it was on the basis of her entering into this new arena, and she now is one of the good guys, right? And the irony here is that she's speaking out about a woman named Marsha Blackburn, um, who... You know, all she does is call her a homophobe and a bigot. She doesn't actually debate her ideas. And what's interesting is that right before that, uh, or right after that segment, she's, you know, a friend of hers is reading this quote that, um, or reading off her phone, and she says, Republicans are attacking Taylor for her intelligence, not their ideas, or not her ideas. They don't respect women enough to debate them. And then, you know, Taylor Swift nods and says, it's not not true. You know, again, it's kind of ironic. She's talking about don't vote for Marsha Blackburn. All Taylor Swift did was say, oh, she's a bigot, and didn't actually debate her ideas, or, or dig into the, the legislative specifics. Like I said, she she did vote for legislation that um, Taylor Swift, um, that, that provided what Taylor Swift wanted to. Anyway, after this, it shows her getting being given this award, and she talks about voting in the midterm. She gets this big applause. And the end of the movie is on the set of this music video for You Need to Calm Down. It's all about, you know, uh, gay rights and and getting people to get out and support uh, LGBTQ rights. It you know shows all these caricatures of people protesting same-sex marriage, and it's a bunch of hillbillies with their signs spelled wrong. That's fine. Um, and she's talking to a friend slash activist, according to the according to the documentary. And he says, you know, you were really really uh, major at the midterms, honey. He calls her honey. I'm. He speaks very effeminately. I assume he's gay. I don't know why else he'd be calling her honey. Um, so. And she replies, if you have anything I can help with, just let me know. 
And her friend responds, I think we need to just like really keep talking about it because we really need, we really do need people to put pressure on these senators to pass the Equality Act. If they are forced to vote on it and they don't vote on it publicly, then it's like really like we have their numbers, you know, like for next year. And Taylor emphatically nods and says, literally just call me for anything because you do so many good things for people. And at the end of that, you need to calm down music video. She directs people to this petition for the Equality Act to get people to vote for the, you know, the Equality Act. It sounds so great, the Equality Act. We'll dig into that here in a second. But the film concludes with her winning this VMA in 2019, you know, after no Grammys in 2018. But during her acceptance speech, she says at the end of this video, there was a petition and there still is a petition for the Equality Act, which basically says we all deserve equal rights under the law. Not true. We'll get to that in a minute. And I want to thank everyone who signed that petition because it now has half a million signatures, which is five times the amount it would need to warn a response from the White House. And she gets this huge uproar applause, right? People are are so excited about it. And her final monologue is this. I'm still trying to be as educated as possible on how to respect people, on how to deprogram like the misogyny in my own brain, toss it out, reject it, and resist it. There is no such thing as a slut. There is no such thing as a bitch. There is no such thing as someone who's bossy. There's just a boss. We don't want to condemn people for being multifaceted. Sorry, that was a real soapbox. You know, and then she catches herself. She's like, why did I say sorry? And the interviewer says, well, we're trained to say sorry. And Swift agrees. She says, yeah, we legitimately are. We're like, sorry, I was loud in my own house that I bought with the songs that I wrote about my own life. I guess she's a big fan of capitalism now. And that's how it ends. And one thing that also kind of informs this is she also did a Rolling Stone interview fairly recently where she said, uh, quote, we need to stop dissecting why someone's on our side or if they're on our side in the right way or if they phrased it correctly. We need to not have the right kind of Democrat and the wrong kind of Democrat. We need to just be like, you're a Democrat? Sick. Get in the car. We're going to the mall. So that right there tells you how misinformed she is. She's like, the, and I, I'm not saying that critically. I'm really not. I'm saying that I think she f- has felt that external pressure to get involved and she knows she can get that instantaneous approval and be one of the good guys. And so the idea that there's no right or wrong kind of Democrat, like that is literally the issue splitting the party right now is what is the right kind of wrong kind of Democrat. And to say, oh, you're just a Democrat, sit, get in the car. AOC is like, no, if you're Joe Biden, I'm not getting in that car. If you're Nancy Pelosi, I'm not getting that car because we're not on the same page. So she goes on to say in the interview, really, I keep trying to learn as much as I can about politics and it's become something I'm now obsessed with, whereas before I was living in this sort of political ambivalence because the person I voted for had always won. We were in such an amazing time when Obama was president because foreign nations respected us. We were so excited to have this dignified person in the White House. My first election was voting for him when it made when he made it into office and then voting to reelect him. I think a lot of people were like me, where they just didn't really know that this could happen. And so, the, you know, again, thinking back to the very beginning where she says, you know, my entire moral code as a kid and now was the need to be good for people to see me as good. And think about what she told her activist friend at the end, you're doing all these good things and we want to be one of the good guys. And, you know, the viol- why would you not want to authorize the Violence Against Women Act or um, the Equality Act? All of these things sound so good. 
And so I really believe that Taylor Swift is being genuine in her motivations and intentions here. I think she does mean that. I mean, the fact that she's like, you're just a Democrat, sick. Let's get in the car and go to the mall. It's like, what the f*** are you even talking about? Do you mean like go shop on Amazon? Like who goes to the mall? What, what world do you live in? When's the last time Taylor Swift is at a mall? So, I mean, all of this feels very outdated just generally. It feels like the year is, you know, 2002 and she just, she's a freshman in college and just took a, a women's studies class or something. Um, that, and, but I think she's just regurgitating what she's been given by people. And she really is a well-intentioned person. You know, she wants to be seen as good. She's found something where people will view her as good. And at the same time, she knows that, like, she's going to get that approval if she engages in it. And because she's regurgitating these things, I think that she's clearly not very informed about it. So one of the ways in which she has been getting involved and, you know, digging into that political process, like I said, was that you need to calm down music video. It has that petition at the end about uh, the Equality Act. You know, I watched this this YouTube video that was like, everything you missed in Taylor Swift's You Need to Calm Down. Uh, I forgot what the channel was. It was one of the bigger ones. And one of the things they say in that video was, you know, that the song and everything, it, quote, seems about empowerment and spreading positivity. And I agree, it does seem that way. Just like Taylor Swift hears, you know, this is how we can be about empowerment and spreading positivity. And her fans can hear the video and, and read about the Equality Act or see her accept, the, you know, a VMA for it and say, yeah, this seems like we're about empowerment and spreading positivity. This is where I think it gets hijacked is because well, what is the Equality Act? Does it spread empowerment and positivity? And I had said I'm going to avoid politics, and I really am. I'm going to include some links to all of this I strongly encourage you to look at. But here's just a few highlights about the Equality Act. You know, it has this benign name, the Equality, the Equality Act. A few things it does is that it would, um, that any establishment that receives federal funding would have to do away with uh, biologically sex-specific locations. Uh, so that means like an elementary school, if they had an employee that was a trans woman, so a biological man, then that person could go into the, the kid's bathroom and use their... It doesn't matter how they would be presenting. There would be no... Um, nothing, no qualifications. There's nothing there that would say like, oh, they needed to have been, you know, socially acclimating or, or transitioning or anything like that. Didn't matter. They could look like me and go into the girl's bathroom when there's a six-year-old in there and the the establishment would have to allow that. There could be no pushback on that. Uh, all distinctions on sports teams would be erased. So for example, in 2018, two biological males uh, got both first and second in a Connecticut state track competition and it edged out, you know, female competitors who were hoping to get scholarships. I think I talked about a while back that there's another lawsuit being um, given by some female athletes in a different school district who can't compete in their sports anymore because there's biological males that have joined in and, and they, they just can't compete physically against that. So all of that would be become normalized and would, would happen all across the board where these young girls who bust their butts <clears throat> to excel and be at the top of their game in these events, you know, a, again, some a high schooler calls uh, all of a sudden uh, identifies as a female could join those sports teams. And then you see them being edged out. And again, that includes with for scholarships. So scouts, a lot of times just look at first, second, third. They don't, if, if it's Debbie, Rebecca and Ashley, they don't 
check to see if any of them are actually biological males. So if you're the third place person there, Ashley, they're not going to look at you, even if Debbie and Rebecca were actually dudes. Uh, another thing, there is a, I'll include this here. Whenever I was researching this, I found this fascinating. If you, if you check out any of my sources for this, I highly recommend this video. Uh, there was these four, there was a panel, it was four people, they were all very far on the left, self-identified as that, and they said, we could not find another forum for this, so they, a, a conservative group called the Heritage Foundation, they reached out to them and said, will you host these people, because no one will host them, and they did a panel about the Equality Act specifically, the people on this panel included a, it was, there was a lesbian who was on a, <clears throat> a some city council some committee for uh, LGBTQ issues for a city, and she spoke out because there was a, a a male rapist who, before going being put in jail, I did it said, "Oh, I'm actually a female," and so they put him in female prison, and then he sexually assaulted two women in female prison. And this woman on this panel, again, she said she was the only lesbian on this panel, said, this is crazy. We can't do this. We're not protecting the women here. And she got fired. She got removed from the panel for speaking out about that. Another person on the panel here uh, for in this video is the editor of, I think it's called Women's Liberation Magazine. She's a self-described radical feminist. And she's she goes through in it talking about all of the legal implications of the Equality Act. Another person on there, all they did was just read letters from parents, including a lesbian couple, about what they've had to deal with as a result of laws that are already existing in certain states that make it very difficult for them to mitigate if their if their kid all of a sudden you know says actually I'm a boy if they're a biological girl or vice versa, and how there are places where they don't need to consult parents. Or anything like that, they can just start giving them hormone blockers. Um, and lastly, the per, then the last person on the panel is a guy who's a statistician, a data analyst type guy, and but he presented he lived as a trans female for something like twelve years before transitioning back to you know his biological uh, his biological sex, and he also speaks about that. So I would say that's that's an expert panel. But they go they go through all of the issues of the Equality Act specifically, and so I would highly recommend that if you watch nothing else, um, watch that. And what's funny is that I, everything that they talk about, at least from a, on a principled level, I've mentioned those things before, like women athletes uh, who are being cheated because of some of this stuff, and I've been called right wing by people for echoing literally the same arguments made by the editor of Women's Liberation magazine. So it's you know, these issues aren't right versus left anymore. They're really not. There's strange alliances that are being formed as a result of this stuff. So that's neither here nor there, but that's just one example of a, per, a well-intentioned person like Taylor Swift who wants to be, wants to be good, wants to appear to be good. Um, again, going back to that article by Jonathan Haidt, you know, people are more interested in being perceived as good by those around them and being approved of by those around them than actually feeling that about themselves. And so someone like Taylor Swift, you know, being hijacked by people to push their agenda and they, you know, they frame this issue uh, as a moral one and, and they say, well, this is it. Who's not for the Equality Act? What'd she say in the speech? Well, we all deserve equal rights. Well, what about the rights of a female athlete in high school who wants to compete against other female athletes? Like, is that really equal is that equal for her to have to compete against biological males i would argue no 
So I, so Taylor Swift is misinformed about that, but she wants to be a, wants to appear as good. And social media makes it incredibly easy to do that. Like the Huffington Post article said, millions of people can pressure them and say, this is a bunch of BS. You know, you're not adhering to our definition of this, that, or the other. And it's, I, I mean, I understand the tremendous amount of pressure that would put on someone. And honestly, just as someone like Taylor Swift can fall prey to that, I don't want to just pick on her. I think that's all of us, right? You know, it's all of us, like I said earlier, all of us want to be uh, perceived of as good. All of us want to be approved by those around us and the combination of social media along with this really loud group there who will frame everything morally and mislead people or bring people on board with them who are you know maybe oblivious and then they will mislead people um, is a really dangerous mixture and you know honestly it's 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 kind of difficult to know how to end a segment like that you know there's so much we can talk about uh, there's so much that ties into the specifics of this issue and so I guess I'll just leave it here, and that is, you know, bringing it back to social media, bringing it back to, you know, why I talk about this celebrity activism is because I think that, like I just said, this, all of us feel these pressures, all, this applies to all of us, I think we all, you know, can identify with Taylor Swift, you know, if there's a room full of people booing in front of you, you don't ever want to experience that again, and if you feel like no one approves of you, you're going to try and find that approval if your identity is tethered to something um, that's that subjective and that fluctuating. It's not healthy, uh, but it's a very common thing. It's common to all of us, not just celebrities. And so my, my one piece of advice here is that if you don't know the specifics of an issue, you know, defer to silence. Defer to saying, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know enough about it. You know, again, Swift had no understanding of the legislation she was advocating for or the specifics of the election. She just knew that she would get applause and that she would get that approval that she desperately wants, that we all that we all want. Um, and so she she caved to that and she, she bought into that and, and got what she was looking for. She's experiencing a significant amount of approval and love and adulation that isn't related to her music. Um, and I think that we all can feel that pressure. But if you don't know what you're talking about, then, then defer to silence. I've been going back through Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. And one of the things he talks about in the book is how to spot a charlatan. And he says, if there's a person who is trying to get you to do something, and it's something that they would benefit from, and it's not something you're like organically connected to, then you should be very skeptical of that person. And be more likely trust people who say, let's just take a second and evaluate the situation here. Um, and obviously there are exceptions, and there's actually a, a logical fallacy that is just because a person benefits from the argument they're making doesn't mean that the argument is wrong. Um, I benefit from the right to vote. That doesn't mean that arguing for the right to vote is a is a bad thing. For That'd be one example of that. But regardless, I think Taleb is correct that we should defer to skepticism in those situations. And so that's why I would say if a person is like, well, why don't you support this? Or why don't you this thing? Or why don't you sign up for this? You know, then I would say defer to silence and be willing to stand by that. One of the problems with everything being framed, you know, Morally, you know, Huffington Post said it right there. People are going to pile on you. People are going to come after you, even if you're just silent. Even if you, you know, if you don't phrase, if you do jump in and don't word it how they want you to, they're going to make sure you word it how they want you to. You will be shamed in the submission. Um, the beatings will continue until morale improves, in other words. Um, and so I, I understand that. I understand that pressure. And it becomes cyclical, right? Like, 
once you jump in, once you're getting that approval, then now you're constantly trying to figure out how to walk the tightrope because you've bought into it. And if you don't, if you don't voice the right opinion, then they're going to come after you, like what we've seen recently with J.K. Rowling, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Stephen King even, um, and Swift herself and other feminists, other celebrities that Huffington Post wrote about. So once you jump in, it's it's self-feeding, especially if that's where you're getting your identity from and you're getting your sense of self from, then it's very difficult to to get out of that. Um, so, and I get it. And also another part of that is that if you're silent, you get mischaracterized, right? You get called a Nazi now because this is all put on this, inside this moral framework. Um, it's like you're silent during the Third Reich. And I... I get the pressure there too of not of not wanting to be mislabeled and mischaracterized. I used to get in trouble a lot when I was younger, and part of that, you know, included some of the ramifications was I would get blamed for stuff that wasn't that wasn't me. Um, but I understand that was part of part of the deal. And to this day, I still hate being mischaracterized or having my uh, my intentions or my perspective, you know, being assumed. Uh, to be something that's not. So I get that. So all of that comes through that social media pressure. Um, so I'll close it here. You know, one of the goals that I've had of this channel or platform or, you know, live stream, whatever you want to call it, was to try and help bring people back together. And so, you know, my last encouragement is to, if you don't know, defer to silence, um, but be willing to stick to your guns on that and don't don't buy into um, that everything is a you know good versus evil uh, type of thing. You know there are certainly some policies that have better tangible, measurable outcomes than others, but we can't know that until we look at the tangible, measurable outcomes of those policies and and actually look at the figures of it to say, well, what would be the more you know quote unquote moral thing here instead of just speculating and or label it based on their intentions. Um, so not buying into that and not piling on in those social media dog piles, you know, I think we have to, again, get back to a place where we assume the best of each other, you know, and, and be willing to take principled stances and not buy into, you know, cheap, easy, dismissive answers on things. You know, last week I had said, you know, I think that people on the right who are criticizing Joe Biden and saying that we need to investigate his corruption, um, I, that I said I think that was wrong and that we don't have any evidence of that when it comes to Ukraine and you know and his son was dying of cancer at the time and so I think we should just leave him alone unless we have some really good evidence he was corrupt and I caught a lot of crap from some conservatives that you know are friends with me or that follow me on social media but that's okay that's fine I think we have to be willing to have those conversations and take those principled stands you know I, I think that that shouldn't be some uncommon thing and we have to assume the best of people and take them at the word. Again, I assume that Taylor Swift is sincere in what she's doing here. My issue is with the the incentive structure is that like Jonathan Haidt laid out with social media that caused those types of things to happen in the first place. Um, so we need to get to a place where that that's not there, that we it's okay for us to disagree. It's okay for us to agree to disagree and to not just say if you disagree, then you're immoral and evil and get on board with us so that you're one of the moral and one of the good guys. Uh, that dichotomy, I think, is really ruining our social um, our social stability, and social media only further exacerbates it. So long story short, social media is cancer. You need to delete all your accounts. Uh, but first, be sure to follow me on Twitter. Uh, share this on Facebook if that's where you're viewing me, or subscribe on YouTube. 
It's that return to reason. If you're going to check me out on Twitter, that's at my mundane mind. So before you delete your account and leave the dumpster fire, be sure to give me a follow on there. I uh, appreciate you watching if this is the type of thing you're interested in. Um, again, please tune in next time or continue to check out my content. It's available on Spotify as well. Uh, Return to Reason. I think my wife's starting to, she's going to put my stuff on Stitcher, I believe. I don't know. I always say, every week I say, I think I'm on these platforms. I need to ask. But then when I'm done, she's asleep and I forget. Uh, so, may, I, uh, honey, when you're if you're watching this, please uh, take a note to, to figure this out and let me know. Or let me know what I need to do to figure it out. Uh, anyway, so next week, uh, the Nevada primaries, I believe, are Saturday, I think. So we'll take a look at that. We'll probably talk about um, that briefly, the you know the results of the primaries. And then maybe we'll dig into some of those other issues that I mentioned earlier, like health care. You know, what are the diff- what are what are the issues with health care? Um, what needs to change about it? Uh, you know, what's the current dichotomy and you know, how can we relook at that? Or dig into the philosophical issues in the Democratic Party. I think there's a really interesting uh, debate to be had there, but it might be better to save that for as we get closer to the convention. I don't know. Uh, I probably shouldn't process this stuff in the moment, stream of consciousness at the end of my show. So I'll leave it there. I appreciate you guys watching, and I will see you next time. Take care.